I was recently on the internet reading a news article and in the corner of my screen, I saw an advert. It was for a company that uses recycled plastic to create designer shoes and bags. Now in the ad, a very determined looking young woman held a red handbag over her shoulder. The tagline read, sustainability is the new luxury. I clicked on the ad and when I got to the company's website, the first thing I thought was, wow, these bags are really cute. But the second thing I thought was, is this really sustainable or is it marketing? It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Many of us have a definition of sustainability, but is it entirely accurate? Hi, I'm Bonnie Lee, and this is The Tomorrow Farm, a new podcast reimagining what's possible through agriculture. What do you think? Is sustainability a luxury only for those who can afford it? It's a very good question. And I guess it's something that we all grapple with as consumers. And to a certain extent, I think maybe sustainability and high end have become intrinsically linked. Whereas I think, you know, in general purchasing um, decisions, I have to say, I see it more and more. I I picked up a packet of potato crisps the other day and it said carbon neutral on the packet. Now, I've never seen that before. Wow. I've never seen that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a consumer product that, you know, obviously people purchase quite regularly rather than something that is more, um, you know, high end or luxury. So I think in purchasing decisions, I mean, sustainability has become much more mainstream. That's Sinead Duffy from Bayer. She thinks a lot about the future of our planet, which means she thinks a lot about sustainability. As an idea, sustainability is a bit grandiose, isn't it? When we talk about sustainability, we aren't talking about one person or one group. We're talking about the entire planet and all the people on it and all the people that ever will be on it. And all of those different people have slightly different perspectives on what it means to sustain. No one understands this quite like Sinead. I'm really lucky to have the opportunity to speak with all sorts of different people who work in lots of different locations around the world. And these can be people working with women in communities in rural Africa, helping them to improve their health. Or it could be environmental groups who are focused on healthy planet and really interested in things like global, global policy. I wanted to know more about these two groups, the ones looking out for farmers in the developing world and the ones looking out for the planet. Are they really all that different? I would say, you know, on the environmental side, people are talking about preserving the planet and that's their overarching goal. And then when you come to, you know, people in the emerging economies, for example, sustainability probably means something around being financially viable and creating a better life for the future generations and preserving the farm. And, you know, when I look at this, I mean, it's very familiar to me because I come from a country of small farmers and most Irish people are only a generation from the farm. And I see that with my own family as well, where they try to run a business, but they're really mindful of the impact that, you know, farming has and the fact that they've, you know, that they've taken on something from their forefathers and they want to pass it on again. So depending on where you live and what your background is, your immediate priorities may be slightly different. You may have a slightly different frame of reference, but the core values are the same. We all want to continue. Sinead's job is to get everyone in the same room and try to find answers. That means environmental groups, farmers, health organizations, governments, finance and business groups, 
consumer groups. I found over the last number of years, we're often looking at the same topics, but we're looking at them through different lenses and we don't often speak the same language. So we need time to spend time engaging and understanding each other. And I think, you know, that never changes irrespective of where you are in the world and what topic you're talking about. We will always need to have that dialogue, have those conversations, hear each other's perspectives and try to move forward, you know, with a more combined approach. Would you say that they start off when well, they start off quite suspicious? They're just thinking, you know, what's what? How does it benefit you? Why does a company like Bayer want to get so involved in you know our conversation, our problems? Are they quite forward when it comes to things like that? Too? I think you know. I often find that when the initial barriers are broken down and we people see each other as people, they're. People were always curious about what everybody else does, and we always learn from each other when we manage to kind of get past that initial nervousness or fear. And I think, you know, fundamentally, we all want to make a difference and play our part in making the world a better place. As I spoke with Sinead, it became very clear to me that sustainability isn't one-dimensional. It isn't just a choice between going green or apathy for the environment. It's more complicated than that. There are three major aspects to sustainability and they're all connected. There's environmental sustainability. Can we keep doing this to our planet? Economic sustainability. Can people afford to make a change? And social sustainability. How would this affect the way people live? Is it fair? Are people happier? Sustainability isn't any one of these three. It's all of them. I want to tell you another quick story about plastic bags. But this time, I'm talking about the kind you're more familiar with. The kind you've used to carry home groceries. This type had become such a problem in one major city. The local government enacted the strictest plastic bag ban the world had ever seen. Stiff penalties and even jail time for producing, selling or carrying one. And it worked. The streets and waterways today are cleaner and the fishing nets are full of more fish and less plastic. Where is this law? Sydney? Stockholm? New York City? Nope. It's in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. Now, the average Kenyan makes about 2,000 euros a year. A low-end apartment in New York costs much more a month. And businesses in Kenya have struggled to pay for the expensive alternative bags, which cost an average six times more. The Kenyan bag ban has been an environmental success, and I think it was a brave step by the Kenyan government. But it comes at a cost. So while it's a great step towards sustainability, it's probably not the last step. Sinead and I talked about all these interrelated parts of sustainability. And at some point during our conversation, the tables turned. She began asking me questions. Oh my goodness. And she didn't hold back. You can almost hear me squirming in my chair. So what if the farmer could have a strong harvest without any effect on the surrounding environment, but the process was more expensive? Hmm. I mean, assuming I'm the farmer, it would come down to belief systems. And I would assume not everyone has the same belief systems. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. Oh, I feel nervous now, now that the shoe's on the other foot. I mean, in an ideal world, in Nirvana, you'd say, yeah, sure, fine, right? I'll pay whatever um, if it means, you know, the future generations will benefit and I, I have zero impact on the environment. 
but I don't know whether everyone is that good. I'm a bit more pessimistic on that set in that sense. Are you, Sinead? Are you quite kind of no, no, you know, there's a lot of good people out there. No, I mean to be honest, I think, you know, I come from a long line of farmers and a lot of my family are farmers and they have farm farms their fathers and their grandfathers have, have looked after and they really have a vested interest in trying to make their businesses work, but at the same time the environmental impact is really important to them. It's it, yeah. It's so difficult. If I looked at it just from a purely business perspective, I would have to say I would take on the hit on my profits, but also would I pass the cost down to my consumer? And then that becomes a consumer question. Are they are they prepared to pay? That's exactly the point. And then we go back to the handbag, mm-hmm. don't we? Then, do, you know, does marketing then start to marry the word sustainability with a luxury item? Only those can afford it, can mm-hmm. be sustainable. So I think, you know, we have a, we have such a different perspective when we come from, well, you know, developed Western countries. When I was growing up in Ireland, it was, a, you know, it was a poor country and we were really aware through government education programs about using electricity wisely. And then as things changed and, you know, the economic environment became different, people are, you know, more holidays, they've better cars, you're less worried about the things that you consume because you can afford to pay them. But that's, you know, has an impact on on the environment. Imagine a bar graph. I know, exciting, right? But please bear with me. On the graph are three vertical pillars, one measuring economic sustainability, one for environment and a third for social. Now, imagine we took this chart with us around the world and studied different societies. The bars would adjust and shift, right? Some places like London would have relatively high marks in economic and social sustainability, but a shorter environmental bar than, say, a small village in the Alps. Now, Imagine we took this chart back in time, let's say 500 years. No matter where you go, your marks would almost always look the same, right? The environmental sustainability bar would be really high. The rest would be... Really crappy. They just had really poor uh, sanitation, very poor, you know, ethics as well, like as to how they treat other people. Um, I, I think that that time was not a great time. My name is Dr. Michael Rivera. Uh, I am a biological anthropologist, uh, which means that I study humans and I especially study the evolution of humans and, you know, the six million year story that has led to Homo sapiens uh, living all around the world today in all different ways. And how does Dr. Rivera read that story? By studying the bones of those that came before us. How can we look at the skeleton that's left behind and try and figure out who that person was. And some of that, of course, requires a lot of biological and medical and anatomical knowledge, but also cultural knowledge. Dr. Rivera can actually develop theories about our behavior by the shape of our bones. Behavior, the things you do over the course of your life, just by seeing your bones. He can tell if you were a hunter-gatherer or a farmer He can tell if you ate food that was cooked or raw. He can tell you if you were left or right-handed and if you had a decent serve. A very simple example would be if you're someone who grew up as a kid and you used to do a lot of sports. So say you uh, used to play a lot of tennis, for example. 
and you're swinging your arm uh, left and right and over your head. And all that constant, frequent, high-intensity activity is going to be working your musculoskeletal system. And after all of that repeated activity, your bone is going to try and uh, your body is going to devote sort of nutrients, um, its, its natural resources towards sort of making that bone thicker. And you can actually study this in, in living athletes. You're going to see that tennis players have a, you know, really thick arm bones compared to people who don't play tennis. Um, and especially when you compare like their left arm with their right arm, you can really see this handedness. But in the 1500s, there weren't too many tennis courts around. In fact, the people living then didn't enjoy much leisure at all. And you don't have to study their bones to know it. This chapter of human history was written in books and on the battlefield. If we were to go back to, say, like the 1500s or 1600s, there is a lot of variability in what people's experiences are in different populations. But I can say that for, for a majority of it, I don't think that it was, a, it was an easy life for many people. I think that at that time, I think a lot of people in, the, in different populations were struggling to find clean water. They were struggling to um, get enough food for themselves or have, you know, great variety or great nutrition in the food that they were eating. Populations were growing more dense as well, and they were living in closer proximity to each other. There was also a lot of warfare. I think that when people um, start to reach this point where they are uh, struggling to find resources and sort of fighting for space, that actually leads to a lot of warfare and a lot of the... Um, you know, a lot of the higher classes, a lot of the monarchy, they would um, sort of exploit the lower classes and get them to fight in wars. Sounds brutal. But 500 years ago was just before a crucial moment in history. There's a reason I took our bar graph back five centuries. Things then were tough, but they were about to get a little less crappy. The Enlightenment was just around the corner. Now, the European Enlightenment was when Isaac Newton came up with the laws of motion. It's when Diderot wrote his encyclopedia. It's when all the good stuff happened. At least that's what I was taught in school. But Dr. Rivera pointed out that there are always more perspectives to consider, more lenses to look through. There are other people beside, like outside the scientists that we may know who are also employing rationalism and logic and experimentation very similarly, but we kind of like don't know them as much. There were so many um, medical scholars who were living in the Islamic golden age. So they were working like in the 1600s to 900s uh, on medicine. And, and they've come up with so many things like, you know, different treatments for smallpox, different, you know, patient care. The first medical license came from the Islamic golden age. And also in China, of course, like many, you know, different scientific discoveries and inventions. As Dr. Rivera pointed out, there was a lot of incredible innovation happening around the world at various times throughout history. Something that we all can do is try and expand who it is that we read and who it is that we acknowledge and whose histories that we are interested in. It's clear that the European Enlightenment isn't the only story. It certainly can't claim reason and logic all for itself. But that time period did offer incredible leaps in agriculture. Improved farming techniques led to better harvests, 
and innovative machinery reduced the labor burden. For example, Jethro Tull's seed drill replaced hand spreading, and the thresher saved farmers countless hours and made grain farming much more sustainable. Farming by hand is hard work and often painful. Just ask an anthropologist. When we look at the bone shape in a very similar way to how we study tennis players, like I mentioned earlier, we actually find that farming is a very grueling life and very, very tough like on your bones and uh, on your muscles. We actually find a lot of evidence of arthritis. Where the bones meet at the joint is actually being worn away. And that is actually what contributes to a lot of arthritis. And we've, we see that as the two bones where they connect, they're actually starting to rub off against each other and smooth, smooth the other bone out. And it's really painful, I, I can imagine. I think that that is something that not many people realize is that 10,000 years ago, it was a tough transition into agriculture. When we discovered the tools to make this grueling work more sustainable, it led to more stability. It freed up our time to chase down other challenges. We built cities and explored the oceans. We invented penicillin and started washing our hands. Economies boomed and life improved for many. Life expectancy climbed, child mortality rates dropped. This progress was driven by scientific and technological advancements. And throughout most of the 20th century, that growth went unchecked. The economic and social bars on our chart were growing and growing, but something else was happening. For the first time in history, this progress on two fronts came at the expense of the third. The environment began suffering. The environment is still suffering. Does this mean we have to give up all of our successes? I don't think it does. Progress does not mean reverting back. By definition, it is a bettering on all fronts, not just some. Economic, so we can enjoy more prosperous lives. Environmental, so we have a world to enjoy them in. And social, so everyone can share in the comfort. What I would like to see instead is to have more working class people, more ethnic minorities, more um, variety, more indigenous and First Nations and Aboriginal leaders be given a seat at the table and be respected for the ideas that they, they put forth about sustainability and about our future. How is it possible to come up with solutions that will take into account, you know, your, your fisherman who is, um, you know, fishing off the coast of Somalia? How about that farmer who's farming rice in, in rice paddies in Malaysia? Exactly. What about them? That reminds me of something Sinead Duffy said that it's important to open our dialogues to include as many different voices as possible, to hear as many different perspectives as possible when making big decisions that affect the future of the environment and, you know, those who live in it. Because there's one thing we all share, a future on planet Earth. But let's stop time hopping for a moment and focus on the here and now. What decisions can we make today that will create a future we want? A lot of people are trying to address this question. Governments are enacting policies. Companies are changing how they do business and making commitments. And Bayer is one of them. They recently announced their own sustainability goals. Three of them focus solely on agriculture. Here's my friend Mark Edge from Bayer talking about their commitments. Things that we're trying to address are societal issues that agriculture has an impact on. So one of them is carbon. 
Agriculture releases a fair bit of carbon. It's part of the challenge that we have in, on a global basis. But it's also one of the few things, plants are the only thing that actually capture carbon and put it into the soil. So we're going to be, as a company, carbon neutral, but we're also going to help our customers, our farmers, uh, reduce their carbon out put by 30% by 2030. So that's the first one. The other thing that you want to do from a farmer's standpoint is you want to minimize the amount of input that you're putting on. So we're really trying to focus on how do we help those farmers make better decisions and be more precise. The inputs he's talking about are things like herbicides and insecticides. Mark said that Bayer is setting out to reduce the environmental impact of those solutions, also by 30% by the end of the decade. And the third one that we're really doing is saying we're going to help support 100 million smallholder farmers to gain access to innovation and technology across a global basis. 100 million? 100 million, yes. Now, Bayer defines a smallholder as someone farming on 10 hectares or less in a low- or middle-income country. Most live and work in Latin America, parts of Asia and Africa. But why are small-scale farmers so critical to sustainability? When we look at the global challenges that we have and our global boundaries that there are, one of the things is, is that clearly we need to be more efficient at producing so that we don't need more land, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, if the population is going to increase by another two and a half billion people by 2050, we have to figure out how to feed all of those people better and use the same amount of land or less. Well, the only way you're really going to address that is if you can do improved productivity per unit of land. Oh yes, I should mention, Mark comes from a farming family. He was born in Iowa and his brother still farms there. So it's safe to say he gets agriculture, whether it takes place in the Midwest or on the other side of the world. When you look at it on a global basis, I can go and help my Iowa farmer, my brother, do a better job and get to, instead of 220 bushels to the acre, maybe he can get 250 bushels to the acre. Or I should talk in tons per hectare. Let's say 12 tons per hectare instead of, now in Africa, they're about one and a half tons per hectare. Okay, so they're, ten, you know, they're not even 10%, but yet that land could be just as productive. So if you want to feed more people, the thing is, you need to go to where it's the best opportunity to make a big difference. And that's with smallholder farmers. One, they want to make more money, they want a better life, and the world needs that that land is more productive. But it has to be done sustainably. Today, there are about 550 million smallholder farmers worldwide. They make up 97% of the world's farmers and they produce as much as 80% of the food in the regions they live in. What's more, experts predict those regions are where the majority of population growth will occur in the coming decades. As you might have guessed, helping make hundreds of millions of farms in developing parts of the world more sustainable isn't as simple as flipping a switch. Quite honestly, with the subsistence farmers, there's the most challenging part of it. And there's a huge piece of this that you see, it isn't just going to be innovation that solves this. There's so much more than one thing. And it, a lot of it's education. And a lot of it's about mindset 
of that you know there's a sort of a cycle of poverty that just perpetuates itself. I don't have enough money, therefore I can't invest in this, and therefore I can't take the risk, and therefore I just keep doing the same thing. Whereas if you have a mindset of like, well, if I take the risk, if I make this investment, then I can actually do better. But without government there, policies there to help make that happen. I mean, it's an understandable that it just, that's the reality of what people are dealing with. So yes, it's very important to focus on innovation, technology, and how that things can happen. But it's also very important to frame this in that there isn't a simple solution. We also see that sustainability is fostered more in some parts of the world than in others. This is another thing that becomes really apparent in, in this. And it's typical for us from rural areas, I would say, from agriculture, to not want a lot of government involvement. We want to be independent of the government. But if you really get honest with yourself and look at what has development of agriculture on a global basis, any country, I don't think that there's any country that has developed their agriculture, food security, without heavy government involvement of policies and positions in place to help manage the risk. Um, farming is, by nature, an extremely risky business. But if you think that you're going to lose your investment, you minimize your investment and hope for the best. And so the way that agriculture develops is actually that if you have government in there that says, no, take these risks, and if you take the risks and it fails, we're going to you know, create the safety net. You won't you know, be out and on the street, so to speak, and, and without anything. But there is reason to be optimistic. So one of the most encouraging things that I see in these different levels of development of countries is the democratization of information. It's hard to imagine, but you know, 30-some years ago when I was traveling around Latin America and developing countries, you would go into these smaller villas areas and they had no electricity and they had no phones, okay? And phones required a, a landline, which meant that you had to have infrastructure that was going to set up so that actually that village could actually get a phone. And then when you did get a phone, it was like one phone for several hundred people and you had to go stand in line and talk to the operator. And, um, so that's completely gone now, right? Well, think about it. That, that was just to connect to somebody. But now the, in a small village, you can have a smartphone and you're connected to the internet and suddenly information is available. So now your sense of what's possible isn't limited to how far you can walk, but it's limited to who can you connect, what, what can you learn. What I see in developing in so many of these countries in Africa is this huge desire of people to, to learn and to change. And, and that's the attitude that I, so I'm super excited about the potentials in Africa. I see that it's on a momentum to change and a trajectory. And this is for many parts of the developing uh, world. And I just think that 50 years from now, it's gonna look a lot different than it does today. And though it will take much more than science to make these small-scale farms more sustainable, seed innovation is already making some amazing things happen. We were in uh, South Africa, and we went out into the countryside and into the field, and we, the local team there knew that we had developed some of our insect-resistant hybrids that had been made available to these smallholder farmers. So we stopped and visited them, and there was a group of women that had been able to get this seed for the first time. Now, in South Africa, they've in all of Africa, just uh, four years ago, three or four years ago, a new insect came in called fall armyworm. And it's 
spread across the whole continent. And if it infests your corn at an early stage, it can completely decimate the crop. I mean, it just goes in and it eats the whole thing. And so it's really quite uh, damaging. In South Africa, the fall armyworm is there. And they've been planting conventional corn. And we went in there and then they had the BT corn or the, that we had uh, developed and made available to them. And it was night and day. And these farmers don't have, there's no question in their mind about the value of what that is because 20 feet away is the conventional corn that is basically only you know three feet tall and eaten up. Um, and they planted it just in exactly the same as the biotech corn that they planted or the BT corn, and that's protected from the insects. They didn't have to do anything else. That's just this protection that's built into the seed. Those sorts of things are extremely gratifying when you see it as a farm kid, you know, it's like, this, would, this made it easy for the farmer and it also made a huge difference in their lives. This type of work spans from coffee groves in Latin America to rice fields in Southeast Asia. And in India, hybrid rice breeds are saving massive amounts of water and significantly curbing methane, a key greenhouse gas. That story is an entire episode in itself. But because we started this in Kenya, I want to end there. My name is um, Gilbert Arab. Bor, or simply Gilbert Bor. I live and farm in Eldoret, the biggest city around me, but the county school was in Gishu, in northwestern Kenya. Gilbert, like Mark Edge, was born on a farm, obtained his education, and chose to spend his career helping other farmers. Along with running a small dairy and maize operation, he lectures at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa and writes online about agriculture. Gilbert's personal history, like many African farmers, is tied forever to the history of my country. This is the part of Kenya which uh, those who know about the relationship between Britain and Kenya would know that uh, when Kenya was a colony of Britain, this part of the country was described as the White Highlands. White Highlands. It's Highland country. It was described as White Highlands because when Britain colonized Kenya, it carved out very good farmland for its people. My parents moved there from what it was called Nandere South in 1964 because Kenya became independent in 1963 and the British people had to leave by virtue of agreements that were made with Kenyan leaders in 1961 to 1963 in what was called uh, the Lancaster Conference. Lancaster is somewhere in London, isn't it? Uh, no, Lancaster is further up north in England. Yeah, that's where they held the conferences with Kenyan leaders so that Kenya could become independent. And one of the agreements was that um, the British government would provide a long-term loan to Kenya for Kenyans to buy off the British farmers. <laughs> and this is, this is what happened. So my, my, my parents uh, bought what, where I live now but on, on a 20-year long-term loan. Right. And were they happy about that? Or did they feel like, well, actually, this is our land in the beginning? Well, many of those, many people say, why should we buy our, back our land? Yeah, I would say the same. It's clear that farming is deeply ingrained in Kenyan culture. It's something I didn't understand before. It's an incredibly important part of being an independent Kenyan. When Gilbert's parents did purchase their farm through this loan programme, they had their children's futures in mind. That future was maize, and maize is vital. I'm talking to you as a maize farmer living in what we call the breadbasket of Kenya. You should know that maize 
is the number one food in Kenya. And in many homes, if you don't have maize for food, they will say we don't have any food, even if they have other types of food. <laughs> it's that important, yes. Yeah, it's quite important. Because of his education and primary job as a lecturer, Gilbert doesn't have to rely on his farm's production for subsistence, but he's in the minority. Now, there are three levels of farm farmers in Kenya. The first one, which is the majority, are the small-scale farmers, defined as uh, farming in, on um, 0.2 of hectare to 3 hectares. Mm. They are small-scale farmers. They are the majority. They, they are probably more than 70%. And, and they produce more than 70 to 80% of the, of the food consumed in Kenya. Then there is the medium scale. That's where I belong. These are farmers who, who own anywhere from uh, above three hectares up to about 20. So mine is 10 hectares, so I'm in that category. Then there is a large scale farmers, those who, who own 50 hectares and beyond. Some go on up to so what could be done to help the majority of farmers in his country? The mobile phone technology in Kenya is very advanced and nearly everyone owns a mobile phone. Farmers who have received training will have uh, applications which they can apply, like um, uh, weather forecasting. We have, we have applications on the mobile phones, so you can, uh, you can click on it and get to know the patterns of the rains when they are going to come, uh, when you should plant. But there are organizations that support farmers, small-scale farmers in Kenya. One of the most notable organizations is known as One Acre Fund. And they support them with, with what? With information, training? They train them. They provide them with their mobile phones and, uh, and applications which they use and train them on how to use them. They assist them to access credit and, and it's safe, and they assist them to get uh, the right inputs, quality seeds, quality fertilizers, and even quality storage of the farm produce and the information about markets. Okay. And have you, have you seen the changes in having a support network like this? Yes, I've seen the changes because farmers are able to, small-scale farmers are able to grow their crops on time. Mm. Uh, they're able to access uh, quality seeds, certified seeds, and fertilizers because the organization organizes for them to, to get to begin getting their inputs three months in advance. And I've seen I've seen the farmers who already have good storage facilities for storing their grains when they harvest. I've seen the diversification that they have uh, been assisted to to get into. Uh, like growing maize and beans so that they have enough food for their homes, for their families. Gilbert knows the power of strong support systems for farmers and also the power of better technology. He's seen what's possible in other breadbaskets. I know, I've been to Nebraska. I saw the maize plantations between Kansas City all the way to Nebraska. It's maize upon maize. What I saw especially in America, is um, use of modern agricultural machines, tractors and other equipment that we don't have in Kenya. A farmer can plant maize and then spray to kill the weeds and the maize continues. I would like to see something like that happening in Kenya. I would like uh, farmers in Kenya to understand that uh, farming is a profession and to, through the support of government in providing the 
right seeds and technology to be able to produce like what farmers do in America. I would like to bring that type of tractors that can be used to plow or to plant for Kenyan farmers so that they can produce more. Having agricultural equipment means that you plant on time, you spray on time, you harvest on time, and you reduce the labor, amount of uh, labor that farmers have to put in. Uh, Many Kenyan farmers have to use hand labor to plant, planting by hand or weeding by hand or harvesting by hand. Harvesting using uh, uh, tractors, big tractors in Kenya is very rare. It's only confined to maybe 1% of the farmers. Now, farmers fail to make money from farming in Kenya because land preparation is poor. Use of fertilizers is very low. And governments also in Africa do not support their farmers that much the way America would do. Again, support is so crucial. I asked Gilbert his take on sustainability. My understanding of sustainability is the ability of um, a farmer to produce from his or her farm and continue to do so in a manner that makes the land available for future, future generations to produce. So based on that definition, would you say that the average Kenyan farm at the moment is sustainable? No, no, I wouldn't say so. I have told you that um, more than 70% of the farms are small scale. Okay. They, are, they are rundown farms, they are not sustainable because the farmers have cut down the trees they have they are squeezing they, because of the population pressure they're squeezing into small land holdings i noticed something from talking to farmers in the developing world their perspective on sustainability is often centered around production in developed nations the conversation is usually about conservation a slight difference but it's important it makes sense when you consider what Sinead said we're all talking about the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. People getting enough food, uh, people getting enough uh, social services, like health services from the government, and uh, how do families um, relate, how do communities relate. A sustainable social situation is where, say, that the people live, live well, and uh, that they do not um, have problems of uh, food insecurity, for example. Medical services are available and families live together in a good way. The medium-scale farmers are able to attain social sustainability. The small-scale farmers have uh, issues because they are, they are not able most of the year to feed their, their families. During our conversation, Mark Edge said something that really stuck with me, something that he learned during his years working in the developing world. If you went and took a survey around and said, do you want to spend your life on the farm just going planting? And I was like, that's not really most people's dream about what they want to do. And so they're trying to find a way that they can 
create a way to, that those that don't want to farm can get off the farm and do something else. And then there's the developed countries where it's like, you know, a very small percentage that are very highly um, technical and, and love farming and do a good job of it, right? I hadn't thought about it like that before. In many developing countries, most people farm. But are they choosing not to pursue other professions or are the options just not there? By 2050, there will be 10 billion of us on Earth. What will we all eat? I've talked to a lot of scientists and experts lately, and none of them have mentioned those little pills you see in science fiction movies. You know, the ones you swallow and fill your belly with pot roast. No one's talking about those. Hold on. Hang on a minute. Maybe they are. Right, hold on. Someone did say something about a pill, didn't they? Yes, here it is. Sure, I'd love to be able to just take one pill and be able to solve all of my problems that I don't have any obesity issues or any hunger issues or any, you know, uh, health issues per se. But the reality is, is that if you look at like the last uh, hundred years, there's been thousands of small steps of improvement. A few of them are noteworthy that you would catch, but most of them are not things that like make the headlines, but they all add up. Okay, right, for the record, no magic pill, which makes sense, right? The solution I need might be different from the one you need. What's important and what's sustainable is a little bit different depending on where we come from. But what's clear is that our planet is in need of answers and those answers will have to solve very complex paradoxical questions like, how do we meet growing demands while using less and less? Let me share some numbers with you that were shared with me and that honestly, I could have done without. Because of environmental pressures like climate change, we're on track to lose 20% of our arable land by 2050. At the same time, we'll have to grow 50% more food and feed to meet the demands of a growing population. Just because these challenges are complex doesn't mean they're unsolvable. I am optimistic. I mean, I do see a sense of urgency in external conversations. I mean, from the start of the year, it is around climate. It is a burning platform and all sorts of discussions are happening. And, you know, people are talking about the need to understand the problem, to collaborate across borders, to share information, to connect more than ever before. And I think, you know, in really challenging times, we have an opportunity to work together and build back better. On the next episode of The Tomorrow Farm, we'll take a look at one of agriculture's most powerful tools, gene editing, and how plant biologists, software developers, and engineers are working together to grow stronger, more sustainable crops. Like always, I want to thank everyone who contributed to this episode. Thank you to Sinead Duffy, Mark Edge, Gilbert Bohr, and Dr. Michael Rivera for taking the time to help tell this story. If you were as riveted as I was hearing Dr. Rivera talk about the bones of our predecessors, I encourage you to check out his fascinating show, The Ark and Anth Podcast, available now. A special thanks to our audio crew, Bernie, Jay and Brent, for making this show sound great. To the video crew, Sean, Kirsten and Brandon, thank you for all your time and expertise. Thanks to our producer, Thomas. And of course, I have so much gratitude for the team at Bayer. Beth, Danielle, Lindsay, Chris, and Julia. 